Lord God, as we tackle a difficult subject, as we deal with the problem of lust and sexuality, help us to experience your plan for our lives, a plan where love is demonstrated, where sexuality is powerfully used for your glory. And Lord, where we struggle, help us to find grace, help us to find the ability to get up and to try again. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I have had several people come into my office, sit down in the chair opposite my desk, and tell me, help me, I'm addicted. They'll explain a struggle. Some of them, since the age of 12, 13, an ongoing struggle when they discovered pornography in their dad's house, on the computer. In some cases, they discovered that their dad was addicted to pornography, and they fell into the same trap. And then as we're talking about this, I say, have you, have you tried to stop? And they tell me, oh yeah, I, I try so many times. You know, it's like Mark Twain. How, you know, it, it's easy to give up smoking. I've done it a thousand times. <laughs> and then I realize that what's going on is much deeper than what I can see. So we talk about strategies. And when I first started having people sit in my office, I had simple solutions. You know, just stop. What's wrong with you? And then they would try and they couldn't stop because this was something that they were addicted to. So I want to suggest to you that there are ways that God is calling us to deal with the problem of addiction. So we, we're going to deal with three parts here. The cycles of lust and the problem of addiction. The Bible's powerful answer to the lust cycle, which I've woven into some strategies and tools for lust-free living. I'm going to give you seven strategies that I believe are biblical that will help us to deal with the problem of sexual addiction because God invented sex, amen? amen? But even though He invented sex, we still struggle with it. It's still an ongoing struggle. Anyone here never struggled with their sexuality? Because you need a doctor. <laughs> because a sexual person is a person who is struggling to live out God's plan for their lives in a sex-saturated society. So let's think about what an addiction is. How can you know if you're addicted? And this comes from the scientific literature. And so I'm just going to take what they say and, and put it up here. Number one, you can't stop. Uh, one gentleman was sitting in a seminar, uh, much like this, being held by a speaker on sexuality. And he was just not interested. He was kind of looking one way, looking the other. And then he, when the speaker started to deal with masturbation, the guy just blurted out, well, what's wrong with masturbation? I do it every day. And so the speaker looked at him and said, well, I just have one question. Congratulations, but can you stop? The guy was quiet. He didn't say another word for the rest of the seminar. Comes out the end, he said, well, why would I want to stop? And he said, that wasn't the question. The question was, why wouldn't you want to stop? The question is, can you stop? So that's one way. If you, if you can't stop, if you find yourself keep going back, you're addicted. If it's getting worse, you're developing tolerance, the kind of things you would never have watched before you now find yourself watching, it's a sign of addiction. If you use it to manage your feelings and moves, it's a mood leveler. If you're feeling high, you use it to bring yourself down. If you're feeling bored and lonely and depressed and anxious, use it to kind of bring yourself up. If you're using it to regulate your moods, it's a sign that you're addicted. 
if you continue despite negative outcomes or potential negative outcomes, somebody's going to see, you could lose your job, you could threaten your, uh, your future spouse or your spouse, and you just don't care about the outcomes, you don't care what happens, that's a sign you're addicted. You're having sex and you know that there's a danger that your girlfriend or can get pregnant or you could uh, end up with an STD. You don't care because you're addicted. Or you experience swings, and this is typical. You know, an addicted person goes, hey man, I'm going to do it. This time, I'm really on top of it. Woo-wee! I, I'm going to conquer this thing, baby. Woo! And then, bang! Well, I've already sinned. I may as well go all the way. What else can I do? Any of you ever done that with chocolate? <laughs> so, you may be addicted to chocolate. You swing from, I don't want it at all, until, well, if I'm going to have it and I've already fallen, I may as well go all the way. So our question is, are we admiring or desiring? You know, what is lust to begin with? What is this problem of lust? It's one thing to admire God's beautiful creation. I'm speaking to the guys here. It's another thing to desire to have that beautiful creation naked and in your bed. You understand what I'm saying here? It's one thing to say, well, you know, there passes what God has made. What hath God wrought? <laughs> Where's my beloved wife? Oh, I can't even use her. But it's another thing to strip that person down and depersonalize them and to go to the internet and to let that lustful thinking take over our lives. Jesus' view, anyone who looks at a woman, and this is from the ESV, with what? Lustful intent is not, just, is not just admiring, it's desiring, has already committed adultery with her what? In his heart. You see, the real problem, Jesus said, is not just the action, it's what's going on in the heart. It's what's happening right here inside of your heart. And the biblical word for heart is really the same as the mind. So when it says heart, it's really talking about what's going on in your mind. Where have you allowed your affections and your attentions to go? And there are people who, when they end up in severe uh, adultery or, or pornography, and they're saying, I just don't know what happened here. I say, I can tell you what happened. It happened with something that started in the heart. It wasn't just that you watched pornography. It was what was going on in your mind in between. Uh, notice this from James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, describing the problem of lust. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust. The word for lust there really means selfish desire. He's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Notice the first one, the desire. The second one, the action. He's enticed. And then, when he does this enough, when lust and enticement happen enough, when that conceives, like a baby being born, it brings forth what? Sin. And this is really sinfulness. And sin, sinfulness, when it has finished its work, brings forth death. Let's put it into a little diagram. We see we begin with lust. Lust results in sin. Sin results in a life of sinfulness. And a life of sinfulness will ultimately lead to your death. Is that clear? So the problem, the heart of the problem is right over here. It's this desire that leads to sin, and sin leads to a life of sin. So if we can figure out what to do with this desire, oh, there is my beautiful one. I love you, I do not lust you. Isn't that a good thing to say? 
I admire what God hath wrought. All right. So, yes, let's just pass them out. Wonderful. Let's pass out the paper and pens, and that will be for our questions. So, lust is where we begin. We need to understand what's going on. Desire, this word lust, is really another word for reckless seeking. A thirst for something you don't have. Now, having, having uh, looked at this and, and worked with a number of, of people in this area, I can tell you what happens here. Uh, people get bored. They feel worthless. They feel down. They just are looking for something. There's this restlessness. And with this restlessness, they start thinking, you know, wouldn't it be nice to feel good? And what makes them feel good? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's going back to something that has, can give you intense pleasure. So sexual acting out occurs when a person is bored, lonely, or feeling down. This is my experience. So people create a fantasy in which they experience the excitement of someone catering to their needs and fulfilling that ache in their hearts. So desire is really a thirst turned wrong. Did you all get that? Desire is a thirst turned wrong. The root problem is meaninglessness, a lack of purpose, and worthlessness, a lack of love. So why does a guy end up in a sexual acting out? Very often because he's bored and he has no purpose and his life is meaningless. Why does a woman often end up in sexual acting out? Because often she feels worthless and a lack of love. And when she gets sex, she translates that into love. Everyone following the basic idea here? So lust is arising from these two root problems. Take a look at this. I love what Ed Houston says here. When pleasure is easily and instantly accessible, can be produced on demand and experienced repetitively, i.e. internet porn coupled with self-stimulation, it becomes addictive very rapidly. The brain forms habits with the greatest of ease, and when the brain experiences the tidal wave of endogenous chemicals triggered by internet porn and climax, it immediately sets up, notice this, a mental model and the foundation for a habit so it can replicate this powerful process more easily next time. Did you all get that? So what goes on, you get intense pleasure and the brain says, hey, next time I'm feeling down, I know where to go. I have this pathway, this mental mood that I can just plug into and draw pleasure to cover up my pain. In the future, when the brain experiences, notice the triggers, stress, anxiety, boredom, loneliness, burnout, etc., and seeks relief, it searches through its memory banks looking for the quickest, easiest, most potent solution, internet porn and self-stimulation. And it's there at a button, secretly, no one knows about it. Now you, you can do chemical addiction and how long will you survive if you are strongly addicted to drugs? How long will you survive at work and in society? Probably not very long. After a while, that stuff will come out. But you are addicted sexually and most people never know. You can mask it. They don't know what's going on inside. And the problem in the church, we don't talk about it. You know, we just go there, happy Sabbath, how nice to see you. Yes, wonderful brother, liar. You're having major problems. You are broken and hurting inside. You just wear this pasty little smile. Happy Sabbath, happy Sabbath, happy Sabbath. Ah! You cry in your, in your room. Because we don't know how to really connect with each other. The church should be a place of healing. Can you say amen? A place where we can really deal with this. 
So what happens in the addiction cycle, and this is from sexual addiction recovery resources, is that you have a fantasy, you have a ritual that you engage in, viewing pornography or some other way of engaging in a ritual, where you act out your fantasy, but when you act it out, what comes next? Shame, because how could I do that? What was I thinking? Why did I go that far? And, and it can be really terrible, some of the things you may end up acting out because of the fantasy, but the shame makes you feel so bad that now your memory bank is there and your brain is looking for some way to feel better about yourself, so where do you end up eventually? Back in fantasy land and rituals of acting out your fantasy where you end up in shame again, which only drives you further into fantasy. You see the cycle here? And the cycle has it uh, breaks us down. Uh, again, Ed Houston says, because we lack real intimacy, we then replace it with fake intimacy. In this fantasy world, the pornography viewer imagines things like, and forgive this is from the male perspective, she wants just me. She adores me. I'm desired, craved, loved. This is an internet image, but this is what goes on. The viewer sees the experience as exclusive, private. It's just me and her. The pornography experience is seen as exciting, pleasurable, taboo, and privileged. Each of those are important. She's allowing me to see her naked, giving the facade of intimacy, exclusivity, loyalty, and trust. And all of this is easy, convenient, instant, and cheap or free. It does not require the risk and work of developing and nurturing a true intimate relationship. What's going on in our world today is a lack of intimacy. And I see this because we are surrounded by strangers and we don't know how to really connect. It takes hard work to be in a relationship, right honey? Even though I make it easy, it takes hard work <laughs> to be in a relationship. <laughs> because you, you're having to work through differences and you're having to really be vulnerable and go through the pain of growing in a relationship. So instead, we settle for fake intimacy. One-liners on Facebook. How many friends do you have on Facebook? And how, why do you call them your friends? Because they signed you up. <laughs> Not because there's anything real significant and special you haven't worked through any difficulties. If you don't like them, you just, you just hide them. <laughs> and so we don't know what real intimacy is in our kinds of world. My wife mentioned earlier, Nicole mentioned about how you can't just deal with the fruit of a sin. You have to deal with the root. If you just come in and chop down the weeds, what will happen after a few weeks? they'll grow right back. So we need to figure out ways to deal with the root of the issue. And the root of the issue is lust, is a desire for greater intimacy and meaning and purpose. Notice uh, Jeremiah 2 verse 13, we referred to it earlier. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So what are the two sins? Everyone tell me. Number one, forsaken the fountain of living waters. Number two, hewn out broken cisterns. So here we can see uh, they, are, they, they forsake the fountain and they therefore seek broken cisterns. Because we don't have genuine intimacy with God and others, we look to broken cisterns like pornography, like sexuality, and that just makes us feel more broken. And instead of going back and fixing the problem, we once again forsake the fountain where God is and we go back to the broken cisterns. Notice the cycle of really what we'd call idolatry. 
We crave intimacy with another person, but we neglect to build deep intimacy with God, so we end up in codependent relationships with others, or even with a computer, with an addiction, because we are, we are not willing to take the risk and vulnerability and the pain of building a deep intimacy with God. So what is at the root cause of sexual addiction? At the root is a desire, a thirst that is good, a core aching in our hearts. God, I need intimacy. Instead of going to God, we got a broken cistern. Now what is a broken cistern? A broken cistern is a place where they used to hold water in ancient times, and they would hold it so they could drink water from it. But you go to drink water, and when you drink, you feel thirsty. Any of you Coca-Cola fans? You don't have to raise. Yeah, you, you notice you can drink Coke and never be satisfied. Have you ever noticed that? You drink Coke and it makes you thirsty. Well, most of you don't drink Coke, so I'm, I'm telling you because of my, my background. <laughs> so when you drink some things, they make you thirsty. And we go to these broken cisterns expecting to experience some satisfaction, but we leave emptier than when we first came. Here's the cycle of death. We thirst, we go to the broken cistern, the broken cistern, instead of satisfying us, makes us feel shameful. Then we get caught up in pain and boredom because when we're shamed, we feel worthless, so we experience pain. Or we end up running away from it and just getting bored. And that just makes us thirsty again. And then we go back to a broken cistern, which only reinforces our shame, which reinforces our pain and our boredom, and which only reinforces our thirst. This is a cycle of death. I want to suggest to you that God has a cycle of life. When we thirst, we go to the fountain of living waters. When we go to God and He heals our inner thirst, when He satisfies that inner thirst, we experience peace and joy. The sins that made us feel our need for God, we find are cleansed. That deep, empty loneliness is filled up with God. We find purpose and intimacy. Purpose takes care of boredom. Intimacy takes care of our worthlessness. And in this process, as we engage in purpose and intimacy, we discover again that this was so powerful that we have a greater thirst, but that thirst leads us to fountains of waters and peace and joy and purpose and intimacy. This is when we become rivers of water. And from us, even as we thirst, we find ourselves growing more and more into life instead of into death. This is God's plan for our sexuality. So I want to share with you seven steps to victory, seven steps that I believe will help us deal with our sexuality. Number one, I'm going to be real plain. Admit your helplessness. By the way, I did this A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Number one, admit your helplessness. You can't fix the problem. Do you realize that? You can't fix it. There's a bunch of us who think if we just do this or do that, we can fix the problem. Take a look at Romans 7 verse 14 to 15. We know that the law is spiritual. Yes, the law says thou shalt not commit adultery and therefore Jesus said that means you shouldn't lust. We know that's spiritual and true, but I am what? unspiritual and sold as a slave to sin. Does a slave get to choose what he wants to do? No. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. How many of you have ever experienced that? You are slaves. I'm a slave to sin. 
So the reality of this is you can fix it. Now who's in here? Who's the main person here? I. I am. The problem is my problem. I am a slave to sin and I can't fix it. I can't change it. Now if I ended right there, instead of just telling you that you're helpless, I would be telling you that you're hopeless. (laughs) Notice what comes next. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Who's there now? Sin. Sin. Is it just you anymore? No. Who are the two? I and sin. These are the two. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. Any of you ever felt like that? I'm worthless. Nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. But notice that what is the nothing good that dwells within me? What is it? It's really sin. Sin is the nothing good that dwells in me. I am not the problem. Sin is the problem. Let's say you have a dog and every time this dog follows you home and it bites you and then it clings to your leg and it comes inside the house and it's biting you. Do you beat up on yourself or do you beat up on the dog? Okay, I know you're pet lovers here, so maybe I should have used another illustration. <laughs> but uh, what are you going to do? You're going to get rid of the, the dog. You're going to get rid of yourself? No, you're not really the problem. The problem is the dog. So I want to give you hope here that you desire to do what's right. Amen? Amen? You desire the good thing. Where's the problem? The problem is sin. Sin is grabbing a hold of you and it's, it's biting you and it's pulling you down and we're going to have to figure out what to do with that dog. <laughs> because our promises are like ropes of sand. Ever you just picture that. You can't, <laughs> ropes of sand, you can't depend on it. Your promises, God, I'm never going to do that again. I, I'm just going to use chocolate cake. God, I'm never going to have another piece of chocolate cake. 30 minutes later, we're back there cutting another slice. Your promises don't seem to help. So while you may be helpless, notice you are not hopeless. Take a look at verse 25. Wretched man that I am. That's feeling like you're almost hopeless. But notice he's not. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is victory. Can you say amen? There is a chance that you can break out of those cycles and And God knows that because if our problem is within, we need help from above. You can't fix yourself. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Now here's how it's going to work. First one, what was A? Admit you are helpless. You can't fix this. B, you need to break down the strongholds. For though we live in the world, 2 Corinthians 10 verse 3 says, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have what? Divine Divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive what? Every thought to make it obedient to Christ. The problem is where? In the mind. Sin has come in. And it's grabbed a hold of my mind. Now I desire something else, but my mind is captive. Then we learn that there is a way to get out of this. It's through Jesus Christ. He steps in. But now there is a part that I have to do. Notice what it is. I need to take the weapons of Christ and I need to use divine power to demolish what? 
strongholds. What are the strongholds in your mind? Now, when I started thinking about this in my own life, I recognized my father was a sex addict. My mother had played with Ouija boards. You know what those are? Where she was trying to determine the future and she had gone to very strange churches. My stepmother was believed she was an ancient Egyptian priestess and was reincarnated now. But then I said, well, you have four stepkids and we're a handful. Which direction are you going? Anyway, the, <laughs> I, when I looked at what was going on in my background, I recognized that they had placed Satan's strongholds in my mind. And you read through the Bible, you notice that we are to repent not only of our own sins, but of our father's sins that have impacted on us. And I, I began to see there were strongholds placed in my mind. Then what, there was stuff that I did as a child. There was stuff that I saw because my brothers were really wild. And uh, I used to come in and bring them tea in the mornings and there would be another woman in the bed. And, and there were movies left lying around and magazines. And I began to realize that through other people's sins and through my own sins, Satan had established strongholds in my mind. What was I going to do with those strongholds? First thought is, I'm going to go and tackle them, you know, kind of, all right, you know, build up my momentum, ah, bang, you know, but I soon found that didn't work. Any of you ever tried this? Yeah. Doesn't work. The greatest battle is the battle of surrender. Instead of attempting to tackle these issues in my own strength, I needed to take God's divine power and my role to surrender the strongholds, to surrender them. Take a look at Romans 6 verses 6 through 8. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. That's surrender, isn't it? Allowing yourself to be crucified. Why? That the body of sin might be done away with so that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Can you say amen? Amen. 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 For he who has died has been freed from sin. If I've died to that way of life, I'm set free. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe we will also live with Him. This was the power. In Christ, He has the ability to put to death that sinful nature. He's the one who can deal with the dog. What's my role? Surrendering the strongholds. Praying, God, I know that I'm angry because of what the heritage my father gave to me. I surrender that stronghold because although he sinned against me, my sin is my reaction to his sin. I surrender the stronghold. I pray, God, that you will remove that captivity of Satan, his fortress set up in my mind, and that you will take care of it. You will deal with it. You will fight that battle and rattle those gates and, and release that stronghold that Satan has set up in my mind. God, I, I'm praying for forgiveness for what has taken place in my past. And I'd, I'd pray through the past and then start praying through this, the present. Because I recognized as I battled through the past, there was the pain of sins against me, the pain of abandonment, and the pain of my own sins. I had to let go of these pains in order to understand what I was really thirsting for, to release the strongholds in my mind. It's from the book Inside Out by Larry Crabb. The process of becoming aware of our thirst, remember I said all begins with thirst, is terrible. But to explore and embrace our deepest hurts puts us in a small company of thirsty people who, because they feel their thirst, 
know what it means to come to Christ in deep and quiet trust. Are you listening to this? Experience you in your thirst so that you can find God as the solution. The person who manages to deny his pain behind a facade of togetherness is dangerously vulnerable to developing compulsively sinful habits because he's not dealt a death blow to the wrong strategies that block his enjoyment of the Lord. The unrecognized and largely unfelt ache in his soul still demands relief. He's ripe for being hooked when he stumbles onto something that provo provides a flash of excitement and a sense of fulfillment. The momentary relief of that core ache more closely resembles the experience of joyful living than anything he's known. It brings him closer than all his efforts to be obedient ever have. And that's why I'm seeing so many theology students who are now coming into my office saying, I am struggling with pornography. Why? Because they're serving God and they find that they have this wonderful Sabbath sermon and the Sabbath experience, but come Saturday night, they're crying in hopeless shame on the floor. Because what had happened is, while they were serving God, there was a core ache that was unmet. And they came back looking for something to fill that ache. And the internet was right there. And all the blessings of the Sabbath suddenly disappeared in a moment because they didn't know what was driving them to it. Repentance, I believe, is God's, mean for cure, God's means for curing your pain and giving you real intimacy. Repenting, Lord, I'm surrendering these strongholds. I'm letting you step in. Just like the Holy Spirit comes in with this big vacuum clean and starts vacuuming up the dirt in your house. And it gets to one room and there's a fortress there. And you say, don't touch that room. It's special. There's pain in there. And he says, I need to get in that door, but I can't break it down. You've got to unlock it. Could we do this another day? <laughs> because I got pain inside that door. I don't want to deal with it. Open the door. So I open the door. And the mess and the filth come out. But there comes in God's vacuum cleaner. And that room is clean. Amen? Amen. Third thing, we need to claim God's power. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 says that we have a way of escape. Amen? That with every temptation, there is an escape. God's power is present in the midst of every situation. Uh, this is Christ's object lesson. Satan had claimed that it was impossible for man to obey God's commandments. And in our own strength, it is true that we cannot obey them. But praise the Lord. Notice the but. <laughs> but Christ came in the form of humanity, and by His perfect obedience, He proved that humanity and divinity combined can obey every one of God's precepts. Can you say amen? It is when we connect God's power, His hand coming down, and, and, and bringing us up, that we have power. If you don't believe in God's power, it's because you've never experienced it. You're helpless on your own, but you're not hopeless. Because God can step in and make a difference. D, decide to stop. And uh, it would be all great if we just did the first one. Hey God, yeah, great, I'm releasing the stronghold. I'm giving it all to you, I'm claiming your power. But I don't want to stop just yet. Um, because I want to have one last fling. That's what one lady told me. She said, I want one last fling and then I'm ready to get baptized. Aww. I said, uh, no, <laughs> you need to make the decision now. I'm not leaving this house. You, I'm never going to baptize you. Okay, I was a little extreme. <laughs> but I was saying, I'm not leaving this house until you make that decision. Because I know if I leave this house 
and you go on that fling, that's it. That's the end of the road. She had to make a decision to stop right away. That's why Romans 6 verse 12 and 13 says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts. Notice what it says. What are these words here? Do not, and notice again, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members of instruments of righteousness to God. God wants to take you as His instrument. He wants to take your body and use it for His glory. He wants you one day to give your body in a glorious relationship with another human being. He wants you to be connected with Him and to do mission work. He wants you to serve Him. Why don't you yield your members up as instruments of righteousness? Do you make a decision today? This is your opportunity. Can you say amen? amen. Your opportunity to say, I'm going to do it, Lord. So I remember there was a young man in my office and I said to him, look, you've got to make some decided changes. I said, you've got to get rid of that computer. He said, no, I can't. I need it for assignments. I said, there's a library. There's a computer there. You can work on that computer. Well, I'll think about it. I said, no, you need to make a change. That computer is just sitting there going, hey, here I am. Woo. And I said, no, you've got to make changes. You've got to get rid of that computer. He says, well, I've installed Covenant Eyes. I said, I know. I get the updates when it means nothing and you just go online. I, I said, the, the Covenant Eyes is not helping you right now. You know, it's almost like a challenge. Let me see if I can get around the system. You know, if, if all your life you've been lying, why does it matter if you, if you have accountability? Accountability is not going to fix the problem right now. You need to simply get rid of that computer. I said, give me your internet cable. I, I, I can't do that. I said, I want, I want your wireless card and your internet cable. No, I can't do that. Then I said, give me the computer. I really need it for assignments. You can't succeed if you're not willing to stop. You've got to make that first decision. There's an addictive cycle here. and At each stage, there are stopping points. Now, this is going to be very direct, but this is the nature of the seminar. Stage one is the best stage to get rid of this problem. Because once you start in the cycle, it's very difficult to stop. Stage one is looking at pornography. If you are in this, if, if you can stop right here, if you can, if you can exit and determine with God's power and strength, that you will take an exit strategy, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, you are at the best level to break this cycle. But if you end up in stage two, then you are reinforcing the chemical cycle here. You're reinforcing it. And then you're going to reinforce it with stage three, which is going to make you need stage four. Stage two, masturbation and, and orgasm. Stage three, feelings of guilt. Stage four, the need to feel good, which leads you back to stage one, looking at pornography. Often in between here, there will be a delay, sometimes of a day, sometimes of a couple of weeks. But unless you break the cycle, you're going to be in trouble. So what do you need to do? In stage one, you need to put in place strategies to prevent you viewing it. That makes sense, right? Stage two, if for some reason you do end up viewing it, you, you can still escape. You can still make a, a way of escape if you do not masturbate, if you view pornography. I'm being very direct. If you end up masturbating, then, in stage, then when you hit stage three, feelings of guilt, you can also lessen the cycle if you recognize Jesus' ability to give you grace. I'd say if you fall... If the devil makes you fall once, don't fall for his, fall for his light twice, 
by feeling so guilty that you don't feel like you can approach God. As we've learned in a previous seminar, that's not guilt, that's shame. And then, stage four, when you're needing to feel good, you can break the cycle by feeding your delight in God, recognizing that your thirst, your intimacy is best met in God. In each one of these stages, there are things that you can do, but pray God you're up at the top area here, feeding your delight in God and putting place and strategies rather than in the bottom area. That would be the ideal. But if you find yourself here at each stage, lessen the dependency cycle, that chemical cycle that causes problems. Stage E, engage in community. Almost every person who's sexually addicted has told me that they are they struggle to have meaningful, deep community with others. They, they struggle. And part of that reason is they've learned to live a lie. So if you've learned to live a lie, how can you really be open and vulnerable with others? To me, community, small groups, are probably the most powerful antidote to lust and the problems of sin. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said, chastity is not non-sexuality but positive interactions with the opposite sex or with the same sex, depending on the situation. Jesus set up something called the church, koinonia, community, where love could be shared at the most powerful level. That's the purpose of the church, to show love, to be real. And that's going to mean we're going to have to do church differently. Simply going and being a spectator is not going to help us deal with our sexual problems. What we need is to be able to get together and to share. Now, I'm not saying the first thing you should do is walk up to a person and go, Hi, my name's Alan Parker. I'm a sexual addict. How are you? <laughs> You're not going to feel very good about, uh, about having that. But we need a place where we can begin to become real and share with each other. Area F, flee areas of lust. So when, you, when you're struggling, the Bible says to flee youthful lusts. And so you need to find ways to get out of danger. And uh, so when you decide to stop, you've got to start determining, how am I going to get out of danger? What ways am I going to do this? So practical things. Yes, install safe eyes or covenant eyes. Give your computer password to someone else. If you're involved in a relationship that is sexual, you need to get out of that relationship. This idea that we'll just be friends, uh, no, you'll end up with friends with privileges. It's not going to work. You need to get out. You need to flee those areas that are causing you to get into lust. If your friendship group is a problem, if, uh, if the movies or the music you're watching are a problem, you need to break out of those areas because while you are still in those areas, you'll never succeed. When uh, I used to help people stop smoking, we used to go to their home and I'd say, give me all your cigarettes. And they would go and get boxes of cigarettes and they'd give, it, give them to me a, I said, all right, is that all of them? They would go, I think so. I said, well, you better look again. Sure enough, stacked in the back of some cupboard there, they would bring out another box of cigarettes. And I said, now what was this for? Well, I just knew that this would help me to show that I was strong. I said, no, that would lead you back to being weak. Just get rid of those things. And uh, we've, we've gone into people's homes. We've deleted everything off their computer. But you, you need more than that. Get away from areas of lust. Figure out what causes you to fall. And the last point here, grow in Christ. As, as we get together, recognize this is a process. You can't simply fix this. You need to grow together in Christ. Yeah, you know, me and you together, we move towards God. 
That's what we need to do, together help each other. It's not going to happen overnight. Some of us think that God's got a little zap machine. Oh God, please take this away from me. And he's going to go zap. Oh look, I'm not sexual anymore. Could this be a problem when I get married? Anyway, that's... <laughs> God is not in the business of zapping our brains and taking out our sexual desires. What He teaches us is how to engage in positive relationships with those around us so that our sexuality can be expressed the way God intended. Can you say amen? amen. Alright, we have time for some questions. I want you to just uh, think through the ABCs here. I'm going to put them up on the screen. And we are going to have some questions. I know that some of you are going to get hungry, so if you need to leave, uh, as we go into Q&A time, that's perfectly fine. Those of you who want to uh, exit, I do want to remind you that what you become while you wait is more important than what you are waiting for. And that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Let's pray. And then those who need to leave can leave and then we'll take some questions. Father God, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for the people who have come into my office and walked out on the process of freedom. I want to thank you, God. I want to thank you for, for the freedom you've brought into my life, for the beauty of a relationship that is intimacy without shame. I want to thank you, Lord, that you have taught me to depend on you to satisfy my deepest thirst. There's a group here. Some of them are struggling with sexuality, and not just sexuality, Lord, with addiction. Maybe they have a friend who's struggling with addiction. May we form community to help them. May your power be evident in their lives. And may they make a decision right now today that this will be the beginning of a new start. I'm not going to ask for any raised hands, but I am, I am asking that within their hearts they raise their hand and say, Lord Jesus, I long to be made whole. Bind up my woundedness. Cleanse me from my past and the strongholds of the devil. And make me the child of God you created me to be. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to just say before we go into the Q&A, uh, we have, where's Michael? We have, uh, Michael is wanting to start a group that uh, we don't want to define it by those who are struggling, but we want to say those who want God's purity in their lives. You may not be struggling with an addiction, but you may want to fortify yourself against that. And so uh, Michael is planning a group. When are you hoping to meet, Michael? Uh, we met twice. You met twice? Okay. Friday after Vespers, where? Uh, 9.30. 9.30, but where, whereabouts? My, my apartment. In your apartment, which is? Uh, um, Spalding Cove. Spalding Cove, okay. Is there anyone else who's hoping to start a group? Anyone else here? All right. I encourage you, find others. Let's make it real. Yes, uh, we have some questions, and we have some of our other presenters. We may call them up. Uh, yes, we have Mike. 
Chris and Dawn are still here. If you have questions about homosexuality or about anything that they've shared or some specifics, don't be shy. Just hand in the questions. Nobody's going to know who you are, and we'll be happy to answer them. They'll be happy to share. They've already poured out their guts. <laughs> you know, hey, you yeah. If you know somebody who's struggling, you just have more questions. Please go ahead and turn that in. All right, and if you need to leave, we understand. I would like you to just stand up. Everybody just stand. Taking a deep breath. All right, raise your hands to the sky. Stand on tiptoes. Breathe in. Breathe in again. Breathe in again. And then let it out and come down and relax. Doesn't that feel better? Yes. All right, now I'm going to ask you to sit again. All right, here's what. Okay, first question Is it still lust? if she's your wife? Is it still lust if she's your wife? The purpose of sex is ministry. Ministering so that the other person may become more of who God wanted them to be. If your purpose is essentially selfish, I see that as abuse of a husband-wife relationship. If your purpose is essentially selfish. The purpose of sex is to build intimacy and to build unity. So when a husband asks his wife, you know, based on a misuse of Bible texts, to submit to his wishes and to do things that she is uncomfortable in doing, is that love or lust? It's lust. So it is possible to be lust even if it's with your wife. What should my friend tell me if they are gay? And I think one of the guys would be best to what deal with I this. Yeah, yeah I'm j shall we hand it over to them? Yeah, who would like to answer that? What should I say if my friend tells me they're gay? Who's going to volunteer? You bold men. Well, Mike, you're the closest, huh? <laughs> In fact, all of you might have different answers, <coughs> having come from different perspectives. What would you say to someone? What would you wish someone would have said to you? Well, maybe I can address what meant uh, the difference for me. Um, as a matter of fact, like I said, I was at the top of my game. It, I wasn't interested in leaving the gay lifestyle. Number one, it had been reinforced for 30 years that I was just gay. So what made the difference was Jesus Christ only. It's none of your business who I sleep with, but it is your ministry to, to show me who Jesus Christ is. So my sisters, who were always kind to all my friends and always accepted me into their homes, secretly were praying that, that the Lord would touch my heart. What was amazing is at my brother-in-law's brother, or brother -in -law's baptism was when the Lord really introduced the Holy Spirit to me in a powerful way. And as it became about Christ, when you accept Christ as your Savior, then let Him deal with who you sleep with or what your sexuality is. And, and so don't make it about, you know, gay, unless somebody's asking, hey, I'm gay and I don't want to be. That's different. But if you want to minister to someone gay, the worst thing you can say is, I'm praying for you. Oh. It's so condescending. And, and, and it really doesn't communicate Christ, in my opinion. Thank you. That's, that's a great answer. We've got two questions that are essentially the same. Um, I used to be addicted to porn and masturbation. I've not done either for over a year and a half now, but I'm still struggling with mind images and I don't know how to clean myself. And then one that's similar to that, how do you stop daydreaming? So I wonder, 
if there's someone who wants to, to tackle that one. Yeah, go ahead with the daydreaming. Um, daydreaming was, for me, the way that I escaped from pain in my childhood. Why don't we just have the other two come up, just with a couple of chairs right here. Are they yeah. still here? Don and Chris, Don. you guys want to come up here too? Oh, yeah, there's Don. Um, yeah, come I, on up, Chris. Up and just, you may need to... Um, for me, daydreaming was a huge thing, not just sexual, but even when I was a little child. I would escape from pain by pretending I was somewhere else, by making up stories, and I had a tremendous imagination, so that's where I went. And that was very difficult for me to overcome, especially when I got into reading fiction. I could go wherever I wanted with my imagination and escape from things. Um, what was most helpful to me was actually not focused on, you know, it wasn't like I was viciously trying, I've got to stop daydreaming. That was very difficult for me, but as I started finding healing in Christ, I was no longer driven to daydream as my escape because he was taking my pain. Um, it did still take a lot of effort. There were many times, especially for me when I would go to bed at night, that's when I would start making up stories about where I wish I could be and the things that I wished I would do and all of those things. Um, but that was when I chose to start focusing on Christ, having a prayer life, and so I would pray to God about the things that were on my mind that I was struggling with, and that helped me. Um, it's, it's something that is always there. You know, when you have a temptation that's, that's been chronic for so many years, you can find yourself easily pretending like, well, maybe if, if I just make up this, then it'll happen. So when you find yourself straying into something, the, the key is always to focus on Christ and not focus on self or try hard to fix it. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a, great, uh, a great way to do it because the more we focus on Christ, the less we focus on the things of this world. Anyone want to speak to the mental images? I'm um, struggling with masturbation for many years, and it, it started at 13, so imagine that pattern for me several times a day. So um, the bottom line or the breakthrough really came when um, someone really broke down for me the scripture that says, let this mind be in you, which is in Christ Jesus. So, okay, so I, I got it that, you know, I could hand you my phone or something, and I've got it in my hand, but the difference is, is to get it inside. It doesn't do any good in your pocket. It doesn't do any good in front of you. It has to be indwelling. In Christ's mind, could he sin? No. Can I help the images that are coming into my mind? No. But if I give permission, and again, it, it, surrender is really the bottom line, and that was the hardest thing. Guys, would you agree? Is surrendering to that and asking or giving permission, if you would, because Christ never forces. But if I give him permission, and it was as simple as that, when it came down to those issues where I couldn't stop the flood of images in my head, I would give him permission, and within seconds, I was off thinking about something appropriate, and those images were burst, whereas before I would be powerless against them. And I'm sure, whether it's masturbation or any other addiction, we're all struggling with that inside, right? Yeah, excellent answer. Thank you. Uh, we have another one here. Uh, is sex before marriage a sin, even though it's done in a truthful way? Does it have anything to do with the commandment to not commit adultery? I, I think behind that is adultery seems to be something for married couples. Uh, is fornication a sin? I, I guess that's the question. Does this mean only that you shouldn't cheat on your spouse? 
So, uh, biblically, I, I saw a hand there, yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and my experience is no one's ever said, man, I wish I'd had more sex before marriage. <laughs> you know, that's, so I like the analogy of stealing. Stealing is you're stealing from your future spouse. And within the Bible, it talks about sexual immorality very clearly within the terms of having sex with somebody who is not your wife or your, or your husband. If, uh, if you're having sex outside of that covenant relationship, it is considered to be a sin within the Bible. And uh, there were very high standards about the kind of purity that was expected of uh, people going into marriage. And sometimes they would even check to see, are these people virgins? I wouldn't advise that kind of approach today, but there is something about God intended the special relationship between two people. Yes. You, yeah, we're not, we're not blaming them for what the guy is doing with that, but we're certainly saying that you're making it more difficult for the guy. Yes. And, and I would say, don't, don't advertise what you're not selling. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's both ways. That's why I say I'm not blaming the, the ladies. Oh, the guys can dress in that way. Yeah, absolutely. Especially, and things have changed. It used to be that ladies would say, we don't, we're not as visually stimulated. But that has changed in the last 10 years. The amount of pornographic usage uh, by females has doubled over what it used to be. And so uh, it, it's growing at a tremendous rate. So we, we have responsibility men as well. Dress reform goes both ways. Thank you. All right. Uh, yes. Um, okay. Uh, yeah. If you, uh, how do you appropriately show affection in a dating relationship? Six-inch rule. <laughs> Never let intimacy get ahead of commitment. Is that a good principle? If you are the ultimate commitment is marriage. So the greatest intimacy should be reserved for when? Marriage. So what is appropriate before that? And you know, this is tough. Uh, some of it is culturally defined in Africa. The guys, uh, the African gentlemen hold hands in Zimbabwe. They just walk hand in hand. Well, in the United States, yeah, that has other, other connotations. But in Africa, it was totally fine. I, it freaked me out a little bit when my senior pastor came up to me as the associate pastor, and he grabbed my hand, and we walked down the aisle. But everybody did it. 
And that was considered appropriate uh, within that context. So there is a, a certain cultural definition to what's appropriate. Um, in South Africa, they kiss you. A, a lady, a married woman, came up to me and kissed me right on the lips because in the Afrikaans culture, that was acceptable. And I'm like looking, did your husband just see that? And, and, but for her, it was, this is how you greet people. So there is a certain cultural definition, but I will so tell you this. Society is pushing us to get sexual and affectionate privileges that are way beyond that level of commitment in the relationship. And if I could be frank about this for just a second. Um, one of the interviews with uh, a Christian organization was talking about, and I believe that this affects Seventh-day Adventists also, but um, now with the whole Bill Clinton thing, that it's common knowledge in Christian circles with the youth that oral sex is not considered sex, and that the percentages are over 50% of young people that believe that you're still saving yourself for marriage if you only, um, uh, if you only do that. And, and so... I don't understand that, but I, I think that it has to do with the fact that we are letting society form our opinions about what is um, intimacy. Absolutely, and we did a covenant, and I don't know if you want to tell them about that. Oh, yes. When, when we started dating, we decided to write a covenant between us, and we included our physical standard. We, we said we would allow no kissing or prolonged or intense hugging. Now, I knew, I knew when we started prolonged or intense hugging. There was this very clear line when suddenly it was like, okay, we should stop. But it was very hard to stop when we were in a prolonged or intense hug. Um, I think one of the things that's really important is, you know, everybody has this standard of, well, this is what I think is okay. Oh, well, for me, I think this is okay. And that's really not a way to make a decision. Well, my standard says this, and your standard says that. We need to go back to the Word of God. Think about, you know, if you're going to marry somebody someday, and you're in a dating relationship with some person, you're not sure yet if this is the person you're going to marry, hypothetically, right? And if you are dating this person, you're going to be married to them someday. Why steal green peaches from your own tree? The longer you wait for physical intimacy of whatever kind, the more rich and meaningful it's going to be because there will be more love, because you'll know each other better. If I hold hands with somebody I just met yesterday, it means nothing to me, right? Because we don't really know each other. When I hold hands with my husband, it's so rich and meaningful because I belong to him. If you're doing things for the sake of getting a thrill, then that's not really love. If this person is going to be yours, Everything is going to be yours. So why should you rush into something? Let it ripen. Let it become sweeter and richer. If this person is not going to be yours, then you're taking something that they're going to take away from their next partner, right? That their someday spouse is going to say, well, you did that with this other person too, right? I'm not saying it's evil to hold hands with somebody when you're dating them and you're in a committed relationship. That's, that's left up to you, between you and God and your conscience. But realize that whenever you do some things, like kissing dramatically elevates the sex hormones in at least some people's bodies. It's certainly been measured. It's something that really makes some people think about sex. So, you know, for my husband and me, we made that commitment. We would kiss each other on the cheek, but nothing more. 
And that was terribly hard when I was leaving Africa. I'm leaving my fiance. I'm not going to see him for four more months. I have to say goodbye to him with a little peck on the cheek and squeeze his hand. Bye, honey. She <laughs> would never do that. <laughs> it's so wonderful. Oh, it was so worth the wait. You know, there was only one moment in our whole wedding day when I was nervous, and that was when it was finally time to kiss. And I thought, oh my goodness, he's going to kiss me. I just pledged my whole life to the guy without a thought. Oh yeah, he's going to kiss me. <laughs> and then our, our, our groomsmen rated the kiss. Yeah, they held up all the little scorecards. 9.6. <laughs> But I'll tell you, that kiss, I had kissed people before, he had kissed people before. That kiss was so far superior to anything I could have ever had with anybody else because it meant so much. We loved each other so deeply. That was such a powerful and wonderful experience. You don't want to steal that from yourself. All right, we have three uh, questions over here, and I've just kind of handed them out, so we, we're going to begin on this side. Okay, this, uh, this question, and two of them pretty much the same. If um, the cycles of addiction uh, you mentioned that uh, we're viewing porn breeds masturbation while uh, breeds shame and then leads to not to feel good, what, is the, what are the triggers? Uh, if the trigger's not porn, what do you do, especially if the thoughts are in the mind? Um, you, can't, you can throw with a computer, but you still have your mind. And, and um, I, I have... Uh, in counseling with some with some gentlemen, there's there's no problem with the computer. Their problem is they see somebody or they touch somebody or their thing is if if I bring them lunch today and they accept it, then then that starts my my processes. Um, so it's it, what is the intent of your heart again? What is the intent of your heart? And uh, th this is what we need. It, our our mind is the battlefield. And uh, we need to keep that mind submitted to Christ. We need to keep that mind washed in His blood. And we need to be accountable to, to other people. Uh, so the, the, you, don't, you don't need a computer to lust. What do we do before the computer? Right. It, it's been here. Yeah. Thank you. Um, my question says, how can I begin to reach my gay friends for Christ without seeing seeming judgmental or realistic well I say be a friend if you're not someone who struggles with this issue I would suggest being a friend um, my wife knows gay people and it was easy for her to be friends with them um, if you're someone who struggles uh, with the issue uh, I would advise not to always do that because it may become a stumbling block for you um, but for me um, I had my wife as an accountability partner, so it wasn't a great issue. Uh, we would have dinners with them, uh, with, with a friend who's gay. Uh, we would always say, you know, it was always understood that we're not going to hide Jesus because that's who we believe in and that's the most important person in our life, mm -hmm. and we're not going to judge you for you being a homosexual, per se. And that kind of freed us up to be able to talk about Jesus. And because we had, they respected our views, they respected where we were coming from, and we respected where they were coming from. And it allowed us an opportunity to really minister. 
to uh, to them. And, uh, you know, it wasn't our goal to be judgmental or to say this is the better way. You wouldn't necessarily say that up front. We do believe Jesus Christ is the best way. And uh, but there's a way of finessing that and being diplomatic and drawing them into a friendship. Thank you. The question says, my brother-in-law has struggled with homosexuality. Through my sister-in-law's marriage to him, he has made many promises to stop an addictive behavior, uh, parentheses, smoking, binge drinking, etc., but has constantly been breaking them. He's also made promises and broken them towards my in-laws. How can we intervene as a family if or when he comes for help, or should we intervene if he doesn't seek help? Um, my only advice in a situation like that is uh, you can't discern the heart and you don't know if this person is sincere about seeking help but I think it's always safe to assume they are and I believe that if you're connected to Christ that only then can you truly number one be proactive now before he asks for help to be asking that the Lord would bring him to that um, and only if you have the discernment from the Holy Spirit can you know when to speak or when not to? Um, in my opinion, if the situation should arise, um, the book that made the most incredible difference in my life and still does is the smallest book, Steps to Christ. You know, you read um, Repentance, the, the chapter on repentance and confession, powerful, and then the one in faith and acceptance. And I'll tell you, in in the struggle to be released from masturbation, those chapters not only um, show compassion, but also talk about restoration and giving up the shame. And so even in the repetitive patterns that just seem to overtake me, I'll tell you, those chapters in itself um, were really the breakthrough for me. Yeah, I have a question here. Is it normal to have sexual thoughts even if you don't think about it? It just pops in the mind and I don't know why. Uh, yes, it is normal to have sexual thoughts because you are a sexual being. And so I think we've lived a lie, I'll be honest. Uh, we've lived a lie in the church that, that you, the people who just never ever think sexual thoughts. I, I don't know who they are, but that's, we think that, that that's normal. The question is, what do you do with the sexual thoughts? It's one thing for a sexual thought to arise in your mind. It's another thing to start dwelling on it. As Martin Luther said, you cannot prevent birds from flying over your head, but you can prevent them from making a nest in your hair. And so what you feed will grow. And so we need to, we need to bring every thought, as we read earlier, into captivity to Christ and surrender those thoughts to Christ, but it, it probably is a very normal thing for us to be sexual. Yes. All right. So, last question. This is, oh, we only have time for one more. Uh, all right, I guess we've, uh, we've got we a couple that more. came in. All right. Yeah. Early on in my, my relationship with my boyfriend, we split up. Uh, over the course of that night, I got drunk and messed around with a random guy. I did not have sex with him, but it came very close. And basically, my, I've told my boyfriend the truth. We've been together for a long time now. We plan to get married. We've already had sex. Because of what I did that night, we were broken up. Does it mean I did not fully save myself for him? Because of the extent, I mean. He has forgiven me, 
but I'm struggling to forgive myself. This question flows from a misunderstanding of God's forgiveness. You don't have to forgive yourself. Somebody much bigger and stronger than you forgives you, but he can only forgive you if you're truly sorry. If you're sorry for your sin and you've confessed it to God and asked him to cleanse you, not just from that particular sin, but from sexual sin, you've confessed every sexual sin you can think of, then God cleanses you. You don't mention in this whether you're sorry for having sex with your boyfriend, um, so I don't know if that's something that you're recognizing as a sinful mistake as well. But just know God can cleanse a person of sexual sin just as easily as he can cleanse them from any other sin. The problem is often shame, and we talked about that in an earlier seminar, the difference between guilt and shame. Guilt is a message from God saying, you've done something wrong, come back to me. Shame is a message from the devil saying, you are something bad, and God himself can't forgive you, and the blood of Jesus Christ can't cleanse you. That's a lie of the devil. Guilt and shame may feel very similar but they're opposites because one is from God and brings you to repentance. If you've repented, confessed, given your heart to Christ, you're washed whiter than snow. And yes, you may have done something that's, you know, disappointing to your boyfriend, but he can forgive you with the same forgiveness Christ gives. Then if you feel shame after that, when you've truly given your sexual sins to Christ, recognize it as a lie of the devil saying, Christ's blood can't cover you, you're still dirty, and don't believe it. Thank you. Uh, just last two questions. Uh, the Bible says that Jesus has been tempted in every way. Does that mean Jesus was tempted sexually? Well, when I get to heaven, we'll be able to ask that question. <laughs> I think what it means is that Jesus was tempted with the same power, if not more, than what we were tempted. And he was tempted to use his divinity, I believe, instead of just being a human being. And we notice how he responded to that. He relied on the same power that we can rely on. Amen? So the way he overcame is the same offer of power that he gives to us. How he experienced sexual temptation, if he experienced it, and in what specific way, we don't know. But the extent, the power of the temptation, whether it was sexual or not, I believe he experienced that. Yes. So it, it's a similar, it's a lust. Same family. Comes from the same family. I, I would like to reach out to my homosexual friends. I thought of a plan to give them your testimonies. My question is, will it be effective if they're not willing to change or feel that they are doing anything wrong? So uh, a quick one, two, three, should they share your message with their homosexual friends? Uh, it's a really hard one. I, I think you have to let the Holy Spirit lead. And, and I give out my testimony to anyone who will take it or who wants it, but I never force it. And if somebody's really resistant and not interested in leaving the homosexual lifestyle, it may actually hurt the gospel to force something on someone who doesn't want it. Comments? Yeah, I say send it. I say um, just just send it. I've had parents who wanted their child to... Read, the, read my testimony, and they decided just to put it in an envelope and send it to them. And the child would either never mention, mention it, or it would open up an opportunity for dialogue, good or, uh, good or bad. I think all dialogue's good, so uh, you can talk about the issue. Uh, yeah, send it, and it doesn't matter. But it's not a, it, don't, your expectation needs to be that it is not in your power for them to change. Yeah. 
let, let the let it let it speak what it needs to speak and don't ask don't ask don't ask don't ask mm -hmm. and uh, and let the holy spirit do his work yeah there's there's a great place for prayer instead of uh questions all right, one last one. And I would say something on that too. I have many homosexual friends and all of them know where I stand on homosexuality. They know that I love them very deeply and that I believe that homosexual behavior is wrong. Um, if you're going to share a testimony with someone, be sure that you have established for them first that you love them. Because the world has told them there are only two kinds of people, those who hate gays, and those who embrace homosexuality. You need to let them know that you're neither one of those. And then you have a context in which they can go, oh, so you actually can still love me even though you don't love homosexuality. In that context, you can share with them. The last question is for any of the three guys who shared their testimony. How do your wives, or how have your wives, dealt with your past? If they're here, can they share some about how that process has been for them? I don't think Deborah really wants to get up and share, <laughs> but you're welcome to. You have the courage. What do you feel like? Don can share how you feel or whatever. Here, let me bring the microphone over here. Deborah has been here to pray. She said she did not want to get up, so she is once again being a tremendously courageous person. Um, God told me from the very beginning that I was to marry Don. I did not know anything about his issues. Or, uh, and uh, so anyway, we were married 21 years when I found out. So needless to say, I was a little shocked. And, um, and I did consider divorce, but God spoke to me and told me what I was, you know, what I was to do. And it's just through, it's, it's just, it's, relying on him and e each time I wanted to give up and didn't understand it was just relying on him and just going to the cross and just w working through all those things and anyway we've been married 31 years and and now we're in ministry so I'm very thankful Amen. thank you Lord thank you again for demonstrating your power There is freedom and power in Christ. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Lord, even though it's difficult at times, for making us sexual beings, beings who can reflect the image of God. Help us not to give up when we're caught in a cycle, but to see your hand reaching out and lifting us up, putting us back on our feet. I remember the words of the Apostle John, Lord. I write this to you children so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Thank you for standing as our advocate when we could not stand. We embrace your peace. Make us now ambassadors of your kingdom. For we ask this in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio 
and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.